Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 564, with Sarah Hurd. The way you would know the difference between a manager and just a member of the staff is if there's trash on the floor and you walk past it, you're not a manager. You're not managing. If you feel like you're above picking up that trash, you're not worthy of being a manager. And I think the goal is always to have everybody want to be a manager. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. Cashflow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month. Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. With excitement, allow <laughs> me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Sarah Hurd. Sarah, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am today? feeling mostly unstoppable mm, today. <laughs> except for this big mic in your face, it's, right? It's different. <laughs> I, I might need it for the kitchen, actually. Right? <laughs> You're doing awesome. So Sarah Hurd split her time growing up between Conroe and Lockhart, Texas. As a way to pay for her first car in high school, she started working at a local restaurant and immediately fell in love with the industry. A few years after Heard was hired as an executive sous chef at the mansion at Judge Hill in Austin, Texas, and it's been pedal to the metal ever since. Heard went on to manage kitchens with some of the best chefs in Austin. One of her most notable jobs was at the Parkside on Six, where she met future business partner and life partner Nathan Lemley. The pair purchased foreign and domestic in Austin in September of 2017 from Ned Elliott, a past guest on the show. If you guys want to check that out, it was episode 118. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 118 to hear his story. And uh, the, the, the pair have been crushing it as chef owners ever since. I can't wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? I think I'm going to have to go back to the mansion at Judges Hill. Um, I'd like to say that I had a bunch of pirates that raised me there. Um, it was definitely a very old school kitchen, but there were yells of keep up the intensity all the time. And it was hard because sometimes it was very slow there. Was that the mantra? Keep intense. up the intensity? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. You got to keep it up or, or you might let things slip. 
So why is that intensity so important? Paint that picture for us of the, that situation where somebody would yell, keep up the intensity. You know, when you're, when you're starting to slow down or you're spinning on your station or you're getting distracted, you need, you need to keep up that intensity. The kitchen needs to be intense because things are very important. All those details have to flow together. And, and if you're not paying attention, if you're letting it slip, it's, it could be a really slippery it's, slope. It's when things get slow that we are the most it complacent. It is the worst. Yeah. And I had a guest on the show. Um, who was it? I hope his name comes to me. But he said it was stages. the chef owner of Stages Restaurant in uh, Dover, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. said 3 or 30. Whether you're cooking yeah. for three or thirty, you got to have the same it intensity. Is. And that is, yeah, keep up that intensity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, man, I hope his name comes back to me. I hate when I can't <laughs> quote people specifically, but anyway, uh, let's bring it back to where it all started for you. I mean, you started working in the kitchens in high school, but when did you know? I mean, bring us there. Gosh, the I, first experiences. I really, really needed a car in high school <laughs> because I needed to get out of the house. And my parents were like, well, you're going to have to work for it. So I was like, okay. I went out and put about 10 applications out to everything across the board and got a job as a hostess at Red Lobster. Nice. <laughs> and took it. I was there the next day. I was excited about it. And, um, I, you know, it seems silly because you're just a hostess, but I loved it because it was a huge restaurant. It was, I mean, a giant corporate mess, but it had these um, systems in place where I could look at this chart and I had to keep this chart going. And from that chart, I had to tell somebody else what to do. And from there, you know, and it was just, it was something I really thrived on. I've always been super type A and, and I love I call it puppeteering <laughs> when you're, <laughs> you have all these strings and you need to make them all work together. And, and I just, I got obsessed with it and then I got a little bored. And, um, so from there I decided I wanted to get moved to busser, which is, you know, what everybody aspires to do. Um, but I liked, you know, organizing the plates and getting the tables together and just like seeing how fast I could knock out that, that dining room and, I started dating a cook and I asked him one day after watching the kitchen, I was like, Hey, is there ever any girls in that kitchen? <laughs> and, um, and he said, and I quote, girls can't handle the kitchen. Ooh, burn. <laughs> and, um, so I went to the manager and I got transferred to the kitchen. I didn't say anything to him. And when I showed up in my uniform, he dumped me and I never saw him again. He and quit. It, and then he and took left, his job. <laughs> and I took his job. Um, <laughs> it was really great. And, and within the year we had, um, it was me and three other girls in the nice. kitchen and we were breaking company records. Nice. It was kind of wild. That but is awesome. I think I just got, um, addicted to it. I got addicted to the, the stress and being able to push through the stress and being able to organize through it and, and see all those details and make them work. And I, I've always been like ridiculously observant, almost to a fault. And I feel like this is the best industry for that. Yeah. You know, and just listening to your story, I feel like a lot of time, uh, people who are really serious uh, or are in this career, uh, professionally, like long-term, they look at the franchises, the corporations, they Mm -hmm. kind of turn their nose to them, but we can learn a lot. There's from those, so much those to be organizations. From them. You know, maybe not the soul in the food. You're not going to get that from, from systems, those, processes, but you're procedures. Get those, yeah, exactly. those systems that you know that management. That's that's. It's a great place to, to start your career because you're going to get those standards. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight that. And also, I love your uh, ability to always show up the next day just a little bit better, right? And I think that's right. just a really great. Uh, 
asset, uh, something to have about yourself to, to, to do well in this industry. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, gosh, I wish there was more of it. Um, I think it's really easy to get complacent because sometimes you feel like, especially on the line, you know, maybe I'll move up to the other station, but that's not going to happen until that other cook leaves or, you know, I've got time, but you don't, you never know. Mm-hmm. You never know when that other cook is going to leave. We never know when that other cook's going to get fired. You never know when they're going to just not show up to work because they're in jail and all of a sudden you need to step up. And that was a lot of when I say the pirates who raised me at the mansion, um, (laughs) that was a lot of it. They, again, they didn't want me on that line. I started out in banquets there. They didn't necessarily want me on that line, but I got transferred out of necessity to the line. And I was constantly asking them, what are you doing? What are you doing? How are you doing that? Like I would get my prep done as fast as I could so that I could watch them. And sure enough, one by one, they would go to jail and I'd have to (laughs) take their station and then they'd be like, man, she kind of did good on that station. You know, maybe we'll start splitting the station. And that was how I moved up. And um, eventually that company was leasing the space and they left. And that's when I met Lisa Wiedemann. She um, she was the owner of the building and saw something in me and kept me on out of that staff. And it was uh, and that's when I got we're talking about the mansion still. Uh, the mansion, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is when you got promoted to sous chef. So you didn't just come on as the sous chef. You no, climbed the no. ladder to get to that point. No, I actually started out, um, Sterling Affairs was the company that leased that space. I started out with them as a banquet captain in the front of the house. I got transferred to the kitchen and banquets. And then I got transferred to the line, moved up the line. It was all in about nine months. Wow. Um, but it was a lot of keeping up that intensity. That it was, was very, that was my um, next question. How, very how much time intense at times. That's incredible. So, um, was it at this time that you kind of committed your life to the industry? Were you, were you on board at this point or where were you as far as mentally committed to the industry? Man, I, I think at Red Lobster, I committed myself to the industry. I was just on such a high cause I felt like I could, I could do so well and I would get that immediate gratification and people took notice and it was just so rewarding and it it was, it was very addicting. I feel like the lifestyle is very addicting. Yeah. And I love, you know, I'm not really uh, an advocate for the traditional route. It's actually not the traditional route. It's the new route of going to culinary school. That's not the way that things were done like before 200 years ago, like before, like you (laughs) just trade. Yeah. It was an apprenticeship. You went, Mm -hmm. you cooked with people and you learned the industry. It was a skill. And I love this approach that you took of just getting into kitchens Mm -hmm. and busting your ass and asking questions. Why do you do it that way? How do you do this? And, and just learn on the job and, uh, to take it all in. And, uh, what advice do you have for somebody who wants to take that approach? Observe everything. You know, don't just, okay, I got to cut these carrots, cut those carrots, but learn how to cut them and be able to look around and not cut yourself and watch that person next to you. What are they cutting? What are they doing? What are they stirring? Why are they doing it this way? You know, hey, what temperature do you cook that at? Take notes. Mm. Did you have a notebook? Were you taking notes? Um, I did, and it got stolen, unfortunately. It was in my work bag, and there was a smash and grab incident, but my notebook is gone, and I'm sure whoever stole it had no use for it at all. Oh, man, that's so frustrating. (laughs) Uh. I'm not the only one. I feel like everybody I know has had their notebook stolen at some point. Oh, that's too bad. Um. So where was the next key point for you or any other lessons? You said you had a key mentor in your life at this point. Talk about her and what she was like and how she influenced you. 
Uh, so Lisa Wiedemann, um, when I worked for Sterling Affairs, I, of course, was running in with her a lot. She owned the building, and she was there all the time. Her office was very centrally located. It's a hotel and restaurant. Um, and I just started talking to her. You know, I looked at her, and I'm like, okay, she's this woman, and she's beautiful, and she's strong, and people respect her. You know, they may, you know, say nasty things, but that happened. I think it just comes with being (laughs) the boss. Women or not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But she was always so poised and on, you know, I would see her running food or like going up and working banquets. Like she was always there and always in it. And I just, I grew to admire her a lot. And from there I started talking to her when I would have problems or when I needed to talk through things or I'd ask her what she's doing yet again, just like, Hey, what are you doing? Show me that, you know, tell me about these this paperwork you're doing, um, almost nosy to a point, but really excited to learn. And she saw something in it. And when Starling Affairs left and she took the restaurant back over, that's when I got promoted to executive sous chef. Um, and from there, you know, I was in, of course, way over my head. I was 19 years old. Jesus, you <laughs> um, that. Yeah, I was 19 years old and had no idea what I was doing. And, but I knew I loved numbers and I loved Excel sheets and, I knew, you know, okay, my food cost needs to hit this number. I knew my guidelines and, and I found a way to make it happen. And, um, I was working with Rob Snow as the executive chef and he taught me a lot about numbers and, and how to run things from there. Our PR director quit and there wasn't money in the budget. And I was so devoted to this restaurant. I was like, I'm going to figure out marketing now, you know? And, um, so I got to spend a little bit of time doing that and, you know, Lisa helped me out with some contacts and gave me a budget and I took over the marketing position for a bit. That was really wild, but that's helped out a lot nowadays because that's what we're doing with this restaurant too. So it's, it was a really good experience. You're talking a lot about the influence these people had on you and what you, what the picture looked like, but give me a nugget that Lisa taught you, maybe like her in her words or in, in observing her or something that you observed her doing or the way she conducted herself that you hung on to and apply in your life today. Lisa was there every single day. She was there. She was a part of every operation. She understood everything that went on in the restaurant. Um, I can't tell you how many times Lisa came down in the kitchen and I would be swamped with a banquet and she'd be like, well, tell me what to do. What can I take? What can I, you know, what do I need to cut? Do I need to fry something? She, I mean, the owner of this entire hotel. And she's like, yeah, I'll, I don't have anything important to do. So what's that communicate to you? That just told me how important it was to be hands on with every part of your operation. I feel like in it, to me, kind of took that sense of um, ownership and taught me what it was to have ownership, mm. not just as the owner of the building, but as the owner of your operation of, of every part of it. Um, she also had such a huge heart. Um, her staff was her everything. Anytime they were upset, anything that happened, she was right there. She was ready to help. Um, she came to my house after I had my baby and helped me with the baby. You know, she just, she was in it wholeheartedly in every part of her operation from the paperwork to the people. I mean, it, it sounds like from a, a, on a scale from one to 10, like you had at least a nine or an eight 
on a level of respect and appreciation. Oh, Maybe even man. a 10. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely a 10. But at the same time, because she... I mean, I feel like the underlying theme is that she cared about you, that she showed mm-hmm. up and she busted her ass and she she was there and she wasn't she led from the front. She she was a, a leader that pulled. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when you care about your people and, and you work hard for your people, they will work hard for you. Absolutely. And I think that's what I'm picking from this conversation. And I think when I realized that it wasn't normal to have a 19 year old executive no chef, absolutely not and that with she no was, culinary experience right, really yeah, before with that nothing. other it than just like red, the lobster, red lobster yeah. um just to see that she saw some little spark and was willing to take so much of her time to just kind of form me and teach me and show me all these parts of the business that were important that i feel like a lot of a lot of cooks that become chefs miss out on that part. They miss out on what it is to do the marketing and mm. why it's so difficult. They miss out on some of the paperwork. They miss out on having to pay the taxes and do the permits and all of those things that generally you have a general manager. And some people will go their whole career having that luxury. Um, for us, we just bought a small restaurant and we don't have a general manager. We are the general manager and the chef and the PR company and the accountant. And, and that's just what it is to run a small restaurant. And if I hadn't had those experiences at the mansion, if I didn't have that foundation to keep me the whole rest of my career just on the cusp of it, watching it, observing it, because I knew it existed and I knew how important it was, I feel like I'd be in really deep water now. Mm. Man, I'm loving this conversation. So ultimately, you moved on. You you went other places. What was the reason for you leaving? Um, I actually left when the mansion at Judges Hill was purchased by another company. They let Lisa go. Um, She sold off more shares, I guess, than she should have. And they let her go. And that was a really big moment for me because I didn't want to be a part of the mansion without her people don't work for restaurants they work for people exactly Mm -hmm. um and basically i decided that it had been six years at that point (laughs) and it was time to go anyway so now you're 25 like how are you choosing well i started oh that's um, right started when i was 17 so i was 23 at this okay still really young uh (laughs) what was the next step for you What, what were you thinking like for as far as what direction to go in Um, I definitely felt like I was ready for an executive position. I don't know how true that was now, (laughs) Um, but I felt like whether I was ready or not, I was going to be able to figure it out. And I had done a lot of banquets and I lived in Kyle at the time. So the Winfield Inn was about two miles from my house. I met with the owner, Jody and her husband and they were all about organic food and, and gardening. And I'm a big gardener. Um, and I've always raised animals. So it was on 27 acres. And, wow. you know, there was the promise of you can have as much land as you want to grow your own vegetables and all of these things. And it was just, it was so picture perfect. And I took it. And it was an exec job. And I had two cooks under me. And <laughs> it was a very, very interesting At the age experience. Of <laughs> yeah. Um, it was it was good. Uh, my daughter got sick the day before I took the job, and it definitely probably hindered me a little bit mm, in that job. I can only imagine. Um, I feel like I still I still put forth as much effort as I could, but I was just mentally not there to deal with a lot of the issues, and. Um, I also wasn't getting a lot of the things that I was promised. I didn't feel like 
their idea of quality food was the same as my idea. And I just didn't feel after about six months, I didn't feel like it was the right place for me to grow my career. You know, I think early on in in our careers, our our job is to, to take roles, to get experience and to find the right people that are aligned with what we want to do. Right. And we only know by getting out there and trying new things. We don't know. We can only guess right until we know that was the big wake up for me too, because I had been at the mansion for six years and I just thought this is how places were. Yeah. You know, I hadn't worked anywhere else. I didn't understand that people did things so much differently mm-hmm. in different places and and so real quick just ramble like just ramble off the places <laughs> that you went and then once we get <laughs> well once we get Ariel after that like we can kind of zoom into like the okay. the key mentors and I still want to leave time talking about how you found yourself in your first ownership position here at foreign and domestic so uh go Ariel real quick drop it on us okay so I went from Red Lobster to Johnny Carino's. I didn't mention that earlier. I was working <laughs> both of those at the same time. All right. um, and then I picked up the catering at the mansion at Judges Hill and Sterling Affairs, which led into the executive sous chef position there. From there, I went to the Winfield Inn. From there, I took um, an executive chef position at the Bar Mansion in Austin, which was quite a drive. Um, from there, I went to Parkside, where I spent almost three years, I believe, and I did a little stint at Olive and June with Sean as well. I got transferred. Then we went to La Condesa and Omni after that. From there, I took a little bit of a leave. I did some catering work and worked on getting the loan for this place because that was a full-time job for I about bet. six months. <laughs> I bet. So after leaving this uh, this last job that you were talking about, uh-huh. what year was that? How far back were we going? Which Which job? Uh, the job where you, you the took Winfield. the job and your, your daughter got sick. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Winfield, I left in the beginning of 2013. Okay. So it's, it seems like a lot because you took over ownership of foreign domestic in 2017. So only four years. Yeah. This all happened in four years. So pick like two locations where you were really transformed and who was it that really influenced you and helped you kind of get the skills you would need to one day own your own place. It would definitely be um, Parkside and La Condesa. Okay, let's dive into uh, Parkside. Who was it at Parkside? What was what was going on at Parkside that was so transformative? Um, Parkside's where I learned about kitchen culture. Um, I knew, you know, obviously we had our own crazy culture at the mansion at Judges Hill. Um, but at Parkside, I learned about the proper type of kitchen culture. What is proper kitchen culture? Oh man. Um, it goes a lot with respect. It's for me, it's always been important. And I always tell my cooks, you have to respect every part of the process, respect, you know, the farmer, respect the dirt, respect the purveyor, the driver of the truck, um, respect the building, respect the guest, respect the servers. It's all about respect. And there I learned that just through little things, it started like, okay, you need to cut the tape. And everybody makes fun of cutting the tape. But it's not about the tape being cut. It's about paying attention to those details. Mm-hmm. It's about things being neat and orderly. And I love neat and orderly. I'm definitely a little bit <laughs> OCD. It gets a little crazy sometimes. <laughs> um, but also things like, you know, Sean uh, Sir Keel told me one time, 
the way I know the difference between a manager and a not manager. I can't think of a good word for that right now. Um, this isn't, this isn't, you don't, I mean, if it's a bad word, you can stop. The worst has been said on the podcast. The, um, the way you would know the difference between a manager and just a member of the staff is if there's trash on the floor and you walk past it, you're not a manager. Mm -hmm. You're not managing. If you feel like you're above picking up that trash, you're not worthy of being a manager. Um, and I think the goal is always to have everybody want to be a manager Mm. everybody working towards that goal i know it is for us um so in the kitchen when you see cooks with messy stations that aren't cleaning it up or they drop something and they don't pick it up that's when you know okay that person needs a little more work Mm -hmm. and they're definitely not gelling with this culture right now and we need to work on them quickly because that one little you know stick in the spokes can, can be bring in, everything that's down. the new standard yeah. right when mm-hmm. once you settle for one person you make an exception for one person that becomes the standard right right you you have why to why is it okay for that person to have a messy you station hold everybody to those high standards mm-hmm. right and that having those standards is what will weed out your people if they can't mm-hmm. hang they'll they'll naturally weed themselves out uh it's hard to have that standard it's hard to keep that level of people on your team for a mm-hmm. long time but it's worth it. Well, right? and I think a big part of it too, with the um, going back into respecting your coworkers and, and was learning to be extremely accountable. What do you for mean by actions. that? Give me an example. Everybody makes mistakes. And, and Sean, another one of Sean's quotes is, you know, you make a mistake once the second time it's a bad decision. People make mistakes. We don't make bad decisions here. Mm. Which is something to live by for me. Um, But learning to be able to say that was a mistake and I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm going to learn from that immediately. But you can't learn from it if you don't admit that you made a mistake to yourself. Mm. I love it. What else did you learn from Sean? All sorts of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I learned that if I do something wrong, he's going to show up. And just he's going to show Sean, up right over my uh, shoulder. Is it Kirkle? How do you say his uh, last Sir Keel. name? Sir Keel. Sir Keel. He's uh, the chef owner of Parkside. Parkside Project. Parkside, so he's yeah. got Olive and June, Backspace, Hugo. Uh, they recently um, shut down Bullfight because they're going to rebrand it. So he's he's kind of an empire builder. Yeah. So With good reason. What is it about Sean that you think is has enabled him to have that presence in so many different restaurants and to operate so highly to continue to operate that high level of respect and discipline and standard across so many different restaurants. Well, I think that when you give respect, you get it back. Mm. And that's a big thing with him. When he speaks with his staff, he doesn't speak down to them. It's, it's very calculated the way he manages. And that was something I loved watching. It was almost um, an obsession just watching the way he would posture himself and the way he would ask a question and the way he would kind of get inside your head. And some people think it's a bad thing to get inside other people's heads. I think it's great because I think that gets their gears turning. If I can figure out how you think about something and then I can course your thinking into a solution, that's the best way. That's going to stick. That's Mm -hmm. so much better than saying, no, do it this way. Exactly. Because it's going to stick better and you're not going to feel attacked. I like it. 
Any other key lessons from Sean worth tapping into before moving um, on to your, your next key mentor? Probably don't get involved with a giant hotel. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you which, mean by that? What, did he taught no, you that? No, there was um, Chavez. You know, it was Sean's restaurants very, it's homey and personal and it has its, you know, Sean has his brand and his mark and, um, and he opened Chavez inside, I can't think of the, oh, it was the Radisson at the time. And he had this great concept and this great brand and layout and, and just dealing with the, um, all of the hotel bureaucracy, it just kind of tore that restaurant apart. And he ultimately was like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore, but I think it was good for me to be able to see that buildup of this awesome restaurant and how that one little thing, well, I guess location's not a little thing, but um, that one component of this whole giant thing was just the one reason it just didn't work. And that's the one of the probably real amazing things about the restaurant industry is there can be one variable that's overlooked that can be the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Yeah. And, and you really <laughs> got to think about every little detail and, and you get to really think of it, look at it at all angles. And I think that drives the, um, the OCD with yeah. me. It's, it's especially now that we own the restaurant, you know, you see it and you feel it so much more. And I always thought I took a lot of ownership in any position I did, but now that I am an owner, it's so much more intense. You know, you just like, there's no letting it slip today. I walked in and, and you know, I wasn't here last night. I was at an offsite event. And I didn't do the breakdown. And I come in today and I'm like, oh, man, that glass didn't get clean last night. And then I'm like, did that get clean before service? Because it, it looks like it's from blanching the fries. Why is that glass still dirty if she blanched the fries before service? And then it didn't get clean. You know, and then I'm like, how many tables sat at that table? You know, and how many people saw that? And, and, and it's just, you know, there's a crumb on the floor over there and there's you know, oh, man. It, it's, it gets crazy, but especially like, um, Google fiber is doing a survey. And yesterday I walked out cause I see some guy painting our parking lot <laughs> and I'm going, what are you doing? And he's going, it's just chalk. It'll wash off. But now there's green and blue paint all over my parking lot. Oh man. <laughs> and it's like, I know that doesn't seem like it would detract from the experience of eating here. But for me, when you drive up, I want the restaurant to be clean and presentable and yeah. I don't want neon green it's, and blue in my parking lot. I just repainted my parking stripes, you know, and <laughs> the sewage cap has part of the stripe on it and got turned. It's driving me nuts. But you know, it's, <laughs> it's true. Like it, there's so many little details you got to look at and every, so many sub subtle things affect the subconscious it does. Uh, and you got to take into consideration all of these little things. Uh, but dialing it back to some of the, the major things you learned from Sean, um, how does this tie into what you learned from Sean? Did I miss a connection? Um, I don't know how we got here. <laughs> We're talking about OCD, I think, or uh, just, no, what was it? Uh, the, the level of intensity when becoming your own owner because of all the things that you start to oh, notice. Oh, it is. That's yeah. what it was. And, um, you know, now that we, we have our own restaurant, it's, I understand Sean and his mannerisms so much more. Yeah. And it's like, I thought I was, yeah, yeah. I, I was, you know, intrigued by it when I worked for him and, and I 
now I kind of understand why he did a lot of things. That makes sense. So any other business uh, nuggets, uh, ways, things that he did in his business that you apply to your life today? Or I mean, you were talking a lot about how he garnered respect because of the respect he gave and the, mm-hmm. a lot of the human elements, which I love getting into because I think that's a big part of mm-hmm. what makes people successful in this industry is the human element. But what about like the systems, processes, procedures, ways that he ran his business? The, uh, the, like the, 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 the less fun stuff to talk oh, about. Oh gosh. Um, yeah, there was definitely some really cool things that Sean did. He has, you know, a manager log, which I had actually never come across, um, until I worked for him and it was emailed out every single night. It had all the details, what regulars came in, what problems there were in the dining room, uh, what staff member was late, who was out of uniform. Can you take us like in order what that log looked like? Oh, are you gosh. doing that now? Um, I'd have to think back. <laughs> I know it would start. There were categories. So there was front of house. There were kitchen notes. Um, and from there, we were expected you know, to notate anybody who was late or had a problem or any um, disciplinary processes that we went through. Um, and then there was a banquet section, which is where I came in. I was running the banquets for Sean. Um, and that involved like how many guests showed up. Um, I would keep notes on if we had choices, steak or fish, what percentage chose steak, what percentage chose fish. It was just very, very detailed note taking. But from there I could go back. I realized at some point, especially with, um, the restaurant, you could go back and see, okay, on this day last year, this is how many covers we did. So on the Friday after Thanksgiving, was it busy or not? Mm. How do I plan for it? Um, you could see like, okay, South by Southwest. What were our busiest nights during South by Southwest? When do I need to be prepared? So it was really cool to see that the longevity and the detailed manner of the notes there. So was this a daily note? It was a daily, daily log. Note? And how many... <laughs> Like, how long was it, if you had to guess it like, how many words? It would depend on <laughs> how many things happened. Um, we had some slow days where it'd be like, you know, a sentence on each section. Okay. And then I had some banquets where it was like two pages. It was like they and showed up at the end of the day. Late. That oh, this. yeah. This was sometimes at like one in the morning. I mean, this is it takes discipline it to does, to but it's at important the end of the day <laughs> when you have nothing left in the tank and you just want to yeah. go to bed, go mm-hmm. home, cuddle up in bed Like you got to have your wits about you to summarize your day and to, well, to go and through not the just motions. to summarize it, but then to to read back over it and edit it and and think about the way that you say things because you have to think also this is going to Sean yeah. who may not have been here tonight and things were not right but I don't want to make them sound like it was just catastrophic. Yeah. You know, how do you phrase it? So not only do you have to write everything down and make notes but you have to edit yourself and yeah. think how am I phrasing this? You know, what level am I going to take him to when he reads this? Is he going to come in in the morning and think like, well, not so much. I think the facts are definitely needed. How how can I put this in a way that doesn't freak him out? Like, okay, you know, we had 10% more people order steak than we expected, but we were able to get some from the line downstairs and the guests did not notice. Not way more people ordered steak. 
we ran out. We had to find more. Yeah. You know, like you. how do you phrase it? How do you edit yourself? Which that was a good lesson in itself. So not only do you have the backlog where you can go back and look at data from the past, but you're also communicating. And I right. think that's the big key here is good communication, the mm-hmm. importance of good communication. And uh, there's tools today. I mean, are you are you still doing it the same way that you did it with him with an email at the end of the day? Or uh, well, are you taking advantage of other technology? We, it's just Nathan and I. Okay. So um, we actually have about an hour and a half drive home and we just sit and kind of talk about the day. There's, I mean, the other thing is we're in a 1300 square foot building. Yeah. So there's not a lot that doesn't get communicated immediately. But you guys are still young when you have your empire <laughs> five years from now. Like you'll you'll mm-hmm. have this uh this framework in your corner. Mm-hmm. So anything else uh well what any other benefits from doing this that we should know about any other impact it had before moving on to the next key well mentor in your so life. So we don't take notes at the end of the night anymore necessarily, but we do utilize um we're using breadcrumb right now and they have Love breadcrumb. yeah it's it's done well for us um but we can go back and look at last year we can go back and look at two years ago and see the sales on the date because it it logs the, the all of that there. for us yep. um and we don't have to you know email it out and and all of those things so that works for us and then in open table we take very detailed notes not just on um not just on how many covers we did, but we can keep a log on each guest. Mm-hmm. So one in particular, we've had books of five top doesn't show up. Oh man. Um, usually at peak <laughs> hours and it happens, it's happened three or four times now. So now we have a note on his reservation that if it's not confirmed, the reservation doesn't stand. Mm-hmm. Um, anything over eight, we take a credit card on because it's just, necessary that's now. that's real estate i mean you it can't is, get that money back in a 40 seat restaurant it's it's huge and and it's not just that hour and a half that we expect you to sit at the table we can't book that table for an hour and a half before mm-hmm. you know you're taking up that table for three hours essentially yeah, absolutely uh you got to look at it that way you got to look at it i can't the word is escaping my head right now but it's uh perishable you know, it that, is, like yeah. that, you don't get that money back. It, it expires, mm-hmm. right? And we've uh, had people that just won't make the reservation because they don't feel like it's necessary for them to put their card down and we should just trust them. And that's, that's one thing we've learned in the last year and a half is you can't trust everybody because mm-hmm. they just, they don't understand how important it is. The margins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So let's move on. Uh, to the next key mentor, you said the next place you really developed as a professional was La Condesa. Am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Who was it here that really influenced you? Oh, gosh. That one's hard. Um, I think it was more so just the culture there. What was different about this culture that had an impact on you? Well, for starters, everybody spoke Spanish. Um, so that was intense. (laughs) I, I knew a little bit of Spanish by the time I left. I was pretty fluent in kitchen Spanish at least. Um, but which is a great skill to have if if you're owning a restaurant in Texas. Oh, it has come in handy. Even just ordering my tacos this morning, it came in handy because I get the good tacos because I don't have to stumble through ordering them. (laughs) Um, no, La Condesa was, I call it a freight train. It is huge and the amount of food and staff 
that are in that kitchen at any given point is just the magnitude is hard to fathom. Um, it's always going. You have a crew that comes in at 4.30 in the morning and starts making the, the masa and starts making the salsas and the guacamole. Wow. And then you have the AM crew that comes in and that AM crew's got to prep some for PM. And then the PM crew comes in and when there's that crossover with the PM crew and the AM crew and you've got 16 cooks in that building plus three sous chefs plus the chef plus the prep crew it gets i mean the kitchen is not as big as you would assume it is it's a lot of efficiency of space um a lot of ordering efficiency is so important there because just in time ordering you 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 can only order as much as you need until you can get the next order in but you can't run out It, it was just the details there were so much more important because of the scale they were on it was give us some perspective of scale um sometimes my produce order would be something along the lines of a case of cilantro three cases of corn four cases of limes six cases of lemons and that was for a day wow you know it was five or six cases of tomatoes because everything's made from scratch there. So to see scratch on that magnitude was amazing too. And um, the systems there, I mean, there's recipe cards for everything. And if that recipe card goes missing, you got to find that recipe so because it can't be different. You're doing a great job at, at painting a picture of the complexity of this restaurant. But what did you learn? How did this make you better? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um I definitely learned that I wanted to own a smaller restaurant. (laughs) Um, I felt like the food was great there and the people were great. And I just didn't feel connected to the guests Mm. there, which was hard because I guess I really didn't have time to be connected to the guests either. But I love being connected to the people that are eating my food. I think that's always been extremely Mm -hmm. important to me. That's that's the only return mm. is watching people enjoy it. For me, anyway. I mean, there's a little bit of money in it, but not much. <laughs> yeah. But well, here, you, I get to watch people eat. Yes. I get to see them enjoy it, um, especially with some of our, our more eclectic dishes <laughs> is what they've been referred to. Um, I get to see people eat something that they never thought that they would eat in their life, but they came in and they feel comfortable and their server is like, no, this is really good. You got to try it. And they're they're gonna eat a heart <laughs> for the first time, and and I get to watch them experience that. That's cool. And and sometimes you know what, maybe they're not into it, and I can immediately go, okay, let's get them a replacement dish. Let's that, get that's that true. Out of you there. can be proactive. You get yeah. to you can be ahead of them, and and they appreciate it. I bet. I really do yeah. bet. That's true. So we gotta start talking transitioning to more current time, okay. right? <laughs> um, so where was it that you, you met your your future life partner and business partner? Again? That was at um, Parkside. He Parkside, started. Right. I think it was two weeks after. For me okay and uh I, I mean take us through that partnership as far as i mean when, when does it make sense to start talking about the partnership because you met him at parkside well, i met but- him at parkside um and it was still we you know we were both with other people at that time when we met um i was thinking more business partnership <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it's all kind of blurred um <laughs> right that makes sense the the business partnership or I guess the work partnership 
definitely came first. Um, I was running the banquet kitchen upstairs and he was running the kitchen downstairs on the line. And there was a lot of crossover, a lot of ordering, a lot of, okay, you have strip on the menu right now. So my banquet menu is going to also have strip because we want to cross utilize that product. A lot of, okay, I don't have anything to do this week in banquets. So what do you need prepped? What big projects can I put your stock on? Um, or I've got a hundred person event with four courses. I need hands to plate, but I don't need somebody all day. Can you send me a cook for these hours? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of learning to work with each other Mm -hmm. before, before we ever owned the restaurant or were dating or, and, and it was really awesome. And then there was a lot of management stuff too. Um, you know, a lot of, okay, Hey, this cook just came upstairs and he's, you know, throwing stuff around and he's angry. What just happened down there? How can I diffuse the situation? So what is it about your, your, I'll just say your partnership, life and business, like makes you guys work well together. Oh, do you have wings um, or do you not work well together? No, we do. Um, I like to tell people I fell in love with him because we worked so well together. Um, I've always respected him. He was leaps and bounds um, above me when it came to food. When I met him, I was kind of just dipping my toes. There were a lot of things I hadn't worked with. He's traveled. He's staged everywhere. So for me, I saw him as for one, a great, you know, partner at work. But then I also saw him as an asset. Like Mm -hmm. I can pick his brain. I can look at what he's doing. I can see these products he's working with. I can taste these new things. And it was like, it was such a great experience. Um, You've heard the expression that you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. There are too many chefs in the kitchen. (laughs) So you're both chef owners. So uh, how do you guys uh, complement each other well in the kitchen? How do you, or do does one of you have more of a like back back of a house mm-hmm. experience and manages like the accounting the uh, marketing and all that stuff i know you had experience yeah, with that it's or- been um we've just kind of rolled into it we started out you know we're gonna kind of do everything together and both get a feel for it and then from Let there the lanes naturally form yeah and from there we were both savory chefs Um, I've always avoided pastry like the plague, not because I have anything against it, except for the fact that everybody assumes that I do pastry. (laughs) Um, so I've always avoided it, but then we found ourselves in this position where we have this restaurant, we have no money in the budget for a pastry chef and we have to have desserts and they have to be cohesive with the menu and they can't be you know, just slap together because that's the last thing somebody eats Mm -hmm. at the restaurant. Um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to take this as a challenge. I'm going to, you know, take that chip off my shoulder and, and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to learn it and delve into waters that are very unknown. (laughs) And, um, I'm lucky enough to have a friend named Tim who is a amazing pastry chef. He worked, um, Oh, I can't even think of his name. The chef that yells all the time. Oh, Gordon Ramsay. Ramsay. Yes. <laughs> um, he was a sous chef under Ramsay. So he's got so much experience. Yeah. He's so great. And um, we formed a friendship. And, and, and he's just like, you know, whatever you need. If you need a bread recipe, he gets me all the base recipes. And then if I want to modify them, he's happy to like talk it through with me and say, okay, well, this is what to expect. Yeah. And this is how to counteract it. Um, so from there I've kind of taken on some of the pastry, um, 
but by no means am I like, Nathan, you're not allowed to do pastry. It's yeah. me. You know, he's he's actually working on a dessert right now. Um, he wants to do a banana dessert, which is cool because <laughs> I have no interest in doing a banana dessert. So that's awesome that he'll have that um, to work on. Um, I've also taken on the front of house a little bit more. I have more front of house experience, I think. Um, and... I don't know. It's no, front you're of doing house a good job painting so it. <laughs> some of the it's things, so different. <laughs> some of the things I want to get into, um, this is not... So I, I interview a lot of people, and a mm-hmm. lot of people, uh, their first restaurant will be their own vision, right? And they don't always yeah. take over uh, a restaurant that was somebody else's vision. So Ned Elliott was the, the original founder of Foreign and Domestic. Again, his episode was 118. You can listen to his story. You're taking over his restaurant. Um, what, were, what was that like, that transition... Uh, why why keep the foreign domestic brand like these are some of the questions i have like why mm-hmm. did you come across that's come probably to these the number one question we get um and because it seems weird for people they're like oh it's such an artistic thing you know how do you how do you make it your own if it's already somebody else's and for us the concept is so similar to what we would have done mm-hmm. already um, we love the open kitchen. We love the small restaurant. We love being in a neighborhood. Um, scratch. We everything. love everything's yeah. from scratch. Everything's made in house. All the odd cuts are used. Um, you know, the wine is all organic or biodynamic or small family wineries. The food is local. It's, it's everything that we would have done already. So when, Ned mentioned that he was looking to get into something a little bit bigger and maybe maybe step away from this. We were like, well, that makes too much sense because the reason we hadn't jumped in was the market in Austin is so volatile. You can open a phenomenal restaurant. I mean, we see it all the time. This really awesome restaurant opens. It's really hot for two months. Until and then four months later, it closes. The, yeah. And... And it's still a great restaurant. There's just something new, There's something new and something hot and and nothing sticks anymore. So t- to take a restaurant that's been open for nine years, that's already in line with our beliefs and what we want and our vision. And it already has a core group of regulars that come in all the time. It's already at least breaking even. We can do that with so much less startup capital mm-hmm. it's turnkey so you're not, it is you don't have a lot it's of more capital. than turnkey we yeah. never we never closed exactly. we just kind of rolled right in so what advice do you have for somebody who is maybe thinking about taking this approach of i mean i don't know how i feel about i mean i've heard different things from different mm-hmm. people i had chef rotoro on the show for he's up in mm-hmm. seattle and he's a staple in the community up there and he, his first restaurant was the same deal. Like he didn't mm-hmm. want to r- ruffle any feathers. He just yeah. went in and, um, he told me that like one of his pieces of advice was change that like your restaurant, your brand. Right. Right. Um, but this seems to be working for you. So there's gotta be, and, and one thing I've learned is there's no one way to yeah. do things <laughs> right in this industry. Right. There's different mm-hmm. scenarios, different things work for different people. Yeah. So you're painting out a lot of the reasons why it worked for you. Cause it was a solid brand and yeah. you could come in. It, everything was aligned with what you wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. So why change it? So when we didn't, we didn't change a whole lot and it took a lot of, putting ourselves to the side 
and thinking what's going to keep the restaurant viable yeah. because it doesn't matter what we want to do if there's no restaurant to do it in. Mm-hmm. So for the first probably three months, we were very, very quiet. We actually took the restaurant over in August of 2017. Um, it was hush hush. The staff was sworn to secrecy. Um, even our regulars, they were, they were pretty much the only people that we talked to about it because I had worked here for about seven months, um, off and on to try to build a when rapport you came with the here, staff. When you I came, came here, in as a cook. <laughs> did, did, did you have the intention when taking the job that you were going to take over? I did. Okay. Um, that's, it how'd was you a, even find out that it was an option? I was just kind of, um, I was texting with Ned one night. We were just texting about, I forget what, I think it was like something silly that happened, with the staff during the day and, and he mentioned it and I was like, um, hold on. And I texted Nathan, which now that I think about it, that's like texting someone and asking them to marry you. (laughs) I said, Hey, do you want to buy foreign and domestic with me? And he was like, yeah. Wait, at this point you guys weren't married. (laughs) No, we're not married. You're not Um, married. We're still just dating. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Um, but he was like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, okay, well I don't have any money. And he was like, yeah, me neither. So from there it was like, okay, we need to figure out how to get a loan, which is a whole new process. And it's not like we had the loan and we were looking for the restaurant. It was okay. We have this restaurant. We need this loan. What do I need to do? to make it happen. And, um, it took seven months. It was almost a Which full-time really job. Isn't, I mean, that's, that's not a long time. I've heard of, of horror stories of people taking years of getting approved. Yeah. Well, a lot of that was, I quit my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I just realized there was no way that I was going to be able to get these documents to the bank in a timely manner. If I was working full-time, mm-hmm. I have a six-year-old at mm-hmm. home. Um, I'm a single mom. Like there's just, there was no time in the day. So I quit my job. I took some catering gigs. I had some contacts. Um, so I was picking up an actually decent amount of catering. And then I told Ned, you know, he was talking about getting a a sous chef because he was traveling and he needed someone in the restaurant. But one of our big things that we agreed on from the start was we're not going to fire any staff when we take over well, with having two executive chefs, there's no room in the budget or the restaurant for a sous chef. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, let's not do that if we can. And I want you just to call me when you need a spot filled. If you're not going to be able to be there, call me. I'll make it happen. So I'll by you in. taking the role, you wouldn't then have to fire that person when you took over full time. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, because we didn't want to start you know, anything on a negative foot. What was that transition like from taking – like when you <laughs> – when the staff knew that you were going to be their new boss, the new owner, here's your delivery. I think uh-huh. I- <laughs> the big truck just ro- drove by. She's like, I might get a delivery during this interview. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so the, the question was, um, what was it like that transition of taking over, uh, of, I mean, I'm sure Ned was pretty well respected Oh yeah. to like, to, 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 t- to go through that transition and to not lose any of the respect that Ned built up, right? And to not lose the respect and the rapport that the clientele had developed with Ned. Yeah. That must, that, that's all it scary It was terrifying. Stuff. Yeah. It was so terrifying. Um, so that was part of being here for the seven months prior. You know, I was here probably from one to three or four days a week, and I was here for service. So I was meeting the regulars and, and developing a relationship mm-hmm. with them. And I just kept this facade of, I'm, you know, just helping that out. I'm on call. Um, I'm in between jobs right now. And of course, you know, there were mumblings 
from the staff. They had heard that he wasn't. It's only you know, natural. Yeah. <laughs> they knew that he was kind of looking elsewhere and that he was maybe wanting to move on. And then here I come and I definitely wanted from the beginning, even if I'm coming in just as a cook, to maintain that um, respect. So there was a lot of, okay, don't let this slip. Keep, you know, don't act like one of the guys. Don't fall in. Don't lose the respect. And so they were definitely piecing things together. I definitely had to squash some rumors like... One of the cooks came up one day and he was like, so when are you guys going to buy this restaurant? Like, what's going on? And I was like, that's oof. (laughs) Um, So when we all sat down at Justine's and Ned made the announcement, they all, you know, wanted to punch me in the arm and be like, are you kidding me? I knew it. You know, (laughs) you convinced me otherwise. It was pretty funny. Okay, so if you had any advice or if you learned anything about transitioning and taking over a restaurant, uh, transitioning the respect from your employees, transitioning the respect from the guests, mm-hmm. what have you learned about doing that? And ultimately, how have you guys done? It's definitely been a slow transition. Um, I think you don't want to shake, shake the tree. You don't want the regulars to run away because that's what you're banking on. Um, you don't want the staff to freak out. So we started out the first couple of months. We made a few menu changes. Um, from there, we started kind of dropping prices a little bit. We wanted it to be more neighborhood friendly. Yeah. Um, and then we started expanding the menu. And then we started adding, you know, the tasting menu that we have. Um, we've definitely, I feel like we've probably tripled the menu, which is really difficult. But you also don't want to do that right away because the kitchen can't handle it. Mm -hmm. It has to be a gradual um, growth. The regulars we've built up have been so amazing. Um, And we have so many people that have come in from the neighborhood that are like, I haven't been in in years and we're excited to come back and we're really excited to see the changes. Um, We put out a kid's menu, which the front of house staff wasn't you know, super excited about right away, but now they're seeing, okay, this family was not going to come in unless they could bring their kid. There's no way. And those families are generally coming in during times when we weren't busy. They're coming in earlier in the night from five 30 to six 30 because they don't want to have their kid around a lot of people or they have bedtimes, you know, they got to get their kid to school in the morning, but they want to come out and have a family meal. And so I think it's, you know, initially the staff was a little bit reluctant on some of the changes, but they're seeing the benefits. So I'm trying to remember, if I remember correctly, uh, Fortin Domestic was very much a scratch kitchen. They had a small menu and they were changing it almost constantly, mm-hmm. right? So was your approach to maybe make the menu a little bit bigger and have some regular, like, consistent menu items to keep some... Uh, what was what was the, 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 the strategy there? What, what were you trying to do? What was that, the reason for that change? So the menu still changes like crazy. <laughs> Sometimes it's um, hard to keep up with. <laughs> but the the there's a few core things that stay on the menu um, that actually we kept from Ned's menu mm-hmm. to try to foster a little bit of familiarity. Um, also, you know, Ned was um, planning to expand the restaurant and go to Cincinnati with it in Houston. So we wanted a few things that would kind of keep the brand Mm -hmm. and be the same at every restaurant. Um, So we've kept the popovers. I think that there would be some sort of mass rising (laughs) against us if we got rid of the popovers. Um, We have a really, really cool new onion. uh, We have a very cool new oven 
um, that just does amazing with the popovers. They're super consistent. There's mm. no fluctuation in the temperature. It's a rationale. Okay. So it's like a combi oven on acid. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it does everything. It washes itself. Like so, it's so cool. Yeah. So that's actually something that's probably a good thing to like, on one last nugget to get from me. Mm-hmm. I think I can see it right now. Um, the the that is the combi oven sitting right there, right? It's it is. It's edge. like yeah. we call it the spaceship. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, huge overhead expense. Uh, it is. We got it on. Um, we got it from a lot used for about $13,000 less than they normally go for, yeah. which was a really awesome find. <laughs> um, awesome. It involved quite a bit of driving and it's, you know, it needed some repairs right off the bat. But, but as far as consistency, how have you gotten your money back on that? I mean, there's a lot oh, of things you can do amazing. with the comedy. Um, I don't have to worry about the popovers, the baking, you know, I'm not a seasoned baker. I don't, you know, I can't be dealing with the variables of an oven that doesn't hold a consistent temperature yep. or that you can't see through the door. So people, open it mm-hmm. um this oven i can set it i can make a setting for this cake you know i make the olive oil cake and it changes but um olive oil cake i can literally hit a button yeah. this, and it knows the temperature yeah. it knows when to drop it it you know this oven i mean like other places like you got to take into consideration the temperature outside the the humidity and all right. these other variables especially when you're baking yeah. uh with with something like this it's all consistent you literally program it so yeah. if you're trying to delegate or mm-hmm. you know make more consistency and standards within your business mm-hmm. having a, a tool like that plus there's a lot of a lot less waste i've there's, heard too yeah there's so much less waste um, and efficiency because you're cooking with humidity right and you can cook things much faster too and, and yeah i mean we use it it can be turned into a steamer very mm-hmm. easily so when it comes to things like um braising so, so you put everything in the braising liquid you put it in the oven you put it on steam and it gets so much hotter so much faster so not only efficiency in time but efficiency in space right because you can have you have one unit that's doing a bunch of different things yeah it's so pretty amazing they're really interesting tools check mm-hmm. them out um has it affected your bottom line at all have you uh, noticed that? i would say for sure okay i mean we we don't have to throw the popovers away ever now mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah was, that was um rough but as far as efficiency and staff we mm-hmm. definitely see it in the labor cool anything else we have not discussed up to this point we got to go to the speed round you, mm. you've got another meeting coming in any minute um i guess probably just the menu the big change the big changes that we've made on the menu um the tasting menu that we incorporated is something that's very near and dear to nathan and i we both have a love for the oful for it, uh, we I mean, for me, it goes back into respecting the animal. Mm -hmm. You can't respect the animal if you're going to kill it for only the nice cuts. You have to use all the parts of that animal to respect it. It also helps out farmers. You know, they can sell something that, you know, they're not selling it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we created this awful tasting menu. We didn't expect it to take off. Um, We kind of, you know, made it so that we could only sell a couple each week and we'd be fine. And it was just one of those more exciting things than it was lucrative. Um, so now we sell about 10 a night. Um, People come in just for it. Coming in And it's so (sighs) awesome. It's so awesome. We have people that come in and they're like, I've never eaten awful in my life. I've had no interest in it, but somebody told me they had it and it was awesome. And I want this to be my first experience. And then to get to watch them from the kitchen and to talk to them and ask them what they think about it. And, and, you know, it's, it's been so amazing. Um, and foreign and domestic was 
you know, founded on those same principles, using the OFL, using the weird parts. Um, we've expanded it. We call it root to fruit. Um, nice. So we use the weird parts. So, you know, we use peach leaves and fig leaves and all of those things that you have no idea that they're edible. Um, but we also were getting a lot of pushback. Our first menu, our first couple of menu changes, we went a little hard on the oval and, um, people were like, there's just not anything I want to eat, <laughs> you know, cause we do have people that are, in- are not interested in that. Yep. Um, so we took it and we moved it. There's still a few things on the regular menu. There's definitely some on the features card. And then we have that oval tasting menu and that oval tasting menu takes it separates it so the people that come in and they don't even want to look at yeah. that like they can't even see the word heart on a menu <laughs> or they're gonna you know ralph what? it doesn't have to be on the table yeah. they can just have their menu and we do keep you know we have a really really awesome hamburger we keep that on the menu and it's 18 dollars, but it's ground in house and it's got you know house made condiments on mm-hmm. it and the bun is made in house and the fries are made in house it's it's so much love put into that burger and it's 44 farms so of course it's great um, and then we keep the steak. We try to keep a couple of simple things and then a couple of just really cool things. Awesome. I've loved this conversation, Sarah. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. All right. I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based RestaurantEthics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you'll get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there if you listen to restaurant unstoppable i'm sure you've heard me say it before but i'll say it again there are two things that you need to let determine your growth the first thing that's people the second thing that's cash flow and we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because i'm working with cashflowtool.com the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business cashflowtool.com is simple powerful and predictive it's simple because it requires no data entry it's always up to date and it works on any device anywhere it's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar activity feed and anomaly detector you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises and it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow head over to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success 
Um, I think just having a respect for every part of the process and just being so incredibly welcoming to our guests has been a huge part of our success. Um, We have to kind of take it aside and say, it doesn't matter necessarily what we want. If the guest isn't into it, how can we accommodate them, make them feel welcome, make them, you know, not feel weird about asking for ketchup instead of aioli. If mm-hmm. they like ketchup, whatever, let's get them some ketchup. <laughs> They're going to love the rest of the burger. They're going to love the rest of the plate. You know, let's just make them happy. I like it. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Oh, my biggest weakness has to be probably my anxiety and getting inside my own head. Um, I think for me, you know, it's very important that things like the flower vases are turned the right way and that there's no dust on the ledge and that I don't see that mark on the wall. Um, Sometimes I let those things, if there's too many of them, they will definitely distract me from some of the more important things. Um, And that's that's probably my biggest weakness. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you grow on your team? Oh, heart and drive. Um, if you can't drive yourself, I'm not going to be able to push you as hard as I want to. And if you don't have heart, you're not going to understand my push. What is your biggest challenge today? Getting all my paperwork done. (laughs) How are you combating (laughs) that challenge? Um, trying to be efficient and stay organized. We don't have a office here, so that's been fun. (laughs) Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Respect. It's all about respect and and everything from the guest to the building to the table to the cook to your coworker to the dishwasher. Our dishwasher's amazing and our staff just loves him. He goes to the parties, he, you know, goes to Thanksgiving with people, nice. he hangs out with them. Nobody's above anybody in this restaurant. I love it. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team. This is something that's common within your four walls, but not common within the industry. I think a standard of service that we, we take on, even though we're a neighborhood restaurant that we find to be very important is we always change out our silverware between every course. We always get a fresh plate. The staff is encouraged to always pour the water for the guest, always pour the wine. They should never have to serve themselves anything. Mm-hmm. And I think with uh, being a neighborhood casual restaurant, that's something that you don't see a lot. And that takes us to that that weird cusp of fine dining, but still neighborhood and also a destination restaurant. I dig it. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Oh, man. I absolutely love the book of greens as far as food goes. Um, it's all about using all the weird parts of the, the plants, you know, tomato leaves. and The and book of greens. It's the big book right. of greens by First time Jen recommended Lewis. on the show. Jen Lewis, the um, book of greens. Uh, do you still want to talk about that? No, no, Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? I think it's really easy to get complacent. Um, you know, the restaurant's doing well, uh, I can take a step back and, and never, uh, you always have to keep up that intensity. I dig it. And, uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that has had a positive influence on operations, efficiency, things of that matter, profitability? Open table has been a godsend. Um, we started out with a a program that wasn't quite as intuitive and it which was, program was that you can uh, say it's all about sharing knowledge. Okay. um you know it wasn't as fluid it didn't think for itself it was very manual okay. and um we just at the busier we got 
the less we were able to control it, we were having overbookings and got you. And now we don't have that. Open table takes care of all of it for all us. All right, this is the last question. Okay. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Uh, maybe. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. Three things you know to be true. What are those three things? Be respectful, be accountable, and have heart. Be respectful, be accountable, and have heart. Sarah Heard, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge, your story, your mentorship. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one person you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? Oh, gosh. I would have to say... Philip, but you are, you've already interviewed Philip. Sean? Um, oh, you know what? Fiore Tedesco. Fiore Tedesco. So awesome. At Loca de Oro, we eat there like every Sunday night. Um, in fact, we're like hyper regulars. It's really bad. <laughs> um, but his restaurant is so awesome. And the food, you can, you can feel the respect. You can feel the respect for the staff. And Adam Orman is the GM there. I'm working with him. You know, he's helping me a lot with the front of house because I've never done it before. So it's good to have somebody who's so great at it. Can you say his name one more time for me? Fiore Tedesco. Fiore Tedesco. Look out. I'm coming after you. I'm pretty sure his name's on my list. So I'm kind I, of excited. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. He's amazing. <laughs> look out, Fiore. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show and let the folks at home know how can we connect with you if you want to follow what you're doing. Maybe come join your team. What's the best way to connect? Uh, you know what? Instagram. And I hate to say it because it sounds so awful, but because I'm doing our social media right now, that Instagram messenger comes straight to my phone. It pops up. The whole <laughs> messages on my screen i can't ignore it so what's your handle um it's at f n d austin it's frank nancy delta austin and um and then my personal one is at chef dot herd h-e-a-r-d i believe this is going to be episode 664 set over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash five sorry 564 <laughs> restaurantstoppable.com slash five six four and I'll have a summary of the discussion over there plus a link to any tools or books that you've recommended and the link to how to connect all over there. Again, Sarah Heard, thank you so much for taking the time to share your mentorship. There is no questioning. <laughs> you are unstoppable. Thank you, Eric. Cheers. <laughs> There you go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Some great lessons in today's conversation. Always be observing. Always be asking questions. Always be learning and getting to that next level and trying to show up tomorrow a better version of yourself than you were today. And I, I love this uh, attention that she gave to leading from the front and being who you know, being the change you want to see, right? If you expect something from your team, then be that thing that you expect from them. Set that example. Be the person that will pick up the trash and doesn't tell somebody to pick up the trash. Set the standard, right? And I, that's what I picked up from today's conversation, listening to Sarah, uh, some other really just great advice in today's chat to like just around kitchen culture in general and it, and it comes down to respect and discipline and orderliness and creating that environment where everybody is striving to be a manager and you have what tom walter calls an entangled company where everybody knows the mission everybody knows the values and everybody is willing to call somebody else out when they don't 
meet that standard, right? And the best restaurants in the world have this mentality, have this approach of a, a team of managers and leaders. So great stuff today. And like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric, at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Catchatory, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. I'm hanging out in Austin, Texas. So if you guys are finding value in this podcast and you're in the Austin area, uh, hit me up. Let me know who you think I should get on the show and just if you want to grab a beer and, and talk to the industry, I'm down to do that too. But you got to reach out to me. And uh, I'm going to be trying to hit up Houston and Dallas and San Antonio as well. So if you are in those markets, I'd love to hear from you. I would love to get the ball rolling and, and uh, reaching out to some folks out there to make an example of. So please get on my radar. Also, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. I'm up to 155 reviews. Thank you so much if you left one. They really help the show with the ranking, and I love the feedback personally. And then lastly, guys, some things you need to know. Restaurant Unstoppable is going to be going from three to two episodes a week. There's a few reasons why I'm making this change. The first one, I've been told by a bunch of people that they just can't keep up with the amount of content I'm creating. And the second reason is if I can redirect that energy of hustling to try to get three interviews published a week, if I can only go to two, then I'm going to really be more intentional about the content that I'm creating. And I'm really going to try to, uh, round off the content that I'm creating. So we're touching on a little bit of everything that I think will make you more successful. And I want to put work into the website to make the content more searchable and more organized. So if you like the way that sounds, let me know if you have any ideas of ways I can improve the show. Now is the time to let me know. And uh, again, just thank you for everybody for helping me get to this point uh, where I can dial it back, where I can start being more intentional and I can really start scaling the sucker. So super excited for the future. And yeah, this is going to rock. All right. That's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.